really excited this week to have Paul Stephen from Virginia to join us on the the podcast. Paul's a, an expert in many, many things, uh, so it seems to me, and I, and I think to, to others, um, uh, certainly international economic law and international law more generally are among those, those things. And um, we were really excited to get a chance to talk to him for a number of reasons, but the, the leading contender, I think, uh, has to do with the Yukos saga which Paul knows more about than than anyone, I think, and which I will sort of simplistically describe as a, a long-running dispute stemming from the use of tax law by the Russian government to, to nationalize the, the former oil giant Yukos. And um, the, the, the conflict produced an enormous arbitration award, really awards, and, and maybe some court judgments too, amounting to $60 billion or more, uh, I think, in, um, uh, in claims now held by Yukos's shareholders and others against the Russian government. And the link to our interest in sovereign debt is fairly clear. Certainly, we're interested in enforcement of claims against foreign governments, and this is one of the most significant sort of enforcement attempts that uh, we have seen in, in the last decade or so. So we wanted to start, first, Paul, let me just welcome you, but also I um, wanted to start by talking a bit about Yukos. So thanks for joining us. Well, Mark Mito, first, thank you so much for inviting me to join you on this podcast. I really enjoy this podcast and I'm always learning from it. This will be the one time that I will subtract value uh, for which I apologize in advance, but I'm very happy to be here. Second, Yukos, uh, what is there to say? I think Sisyphus probably should be on the cover of any book that somebody writes about Yukos. Uh, it's a uh, extraordinary uh, struggle. Uh, it's very complicated, both in the technical sense uh, the formal mechanisms that were used by the company and with which the Russian government responded and complicated in the sense of what's really going on because uh, Russia during the 1990s up until the ascendancy of Putin is a classic uh, Matushka kind of story, you know, the doll within the doll within the doll. So uh, I think I know a lot about the Yukos case, but there's so much more that I don't know. Paul, maybe so that we can all sort of get a sense of this incredibly rich story, but also get a sense of your part in the story. Would you mind by sort of starting us with your connection to Russia and Russian tax law and the post-Soviet evolution of Russia. I, I know that's a lot, but maybe we can start there and then go from that to, uh, because I, if memory serves, you started out as an advisor to the Russian government, and now you're probably 
uh, one of the people disliked by Mr. Putin the most. So I, 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 maybe that's a mischaracterization, but I am, of course, terrified of ever being disliked by Mr. Putin, given what he does to his enemies. But can we start there? Sure. Well, let me jump to the present and say, I really doubt that Mr. Putin knows who I am. Uh, we met once briefly back in 1991, and uh, there is no track record at all of Russia taking hostile activities towards Western experts that happen to disagree with the government on uh, legal tactical issues, even when that gets played out in arbitration. You know, the people who find themselves in trouble are defectors, people who were on his side and no longer are. I'm just not that guy. So where does it start? I guess it starts in 1968. The Chicago Convention uh, makes it impossible for me ever to align with the Democratic Party. Uh, the uh, anti-war and civil rights movements in America that I'm heavily involved in is pushing me further and further left. Uh, I become involved on the periphery of the Black Panther Party. And as those political developments are unfolding, I uh, plunge into Soviet studies at Yale, which just happens at the time to have uh, really terrific uh, professors in that area. So I, I end up in a deep immersion in Russian history, culture, uh, language, uh, Soviet politics. I read all of Lenin's complete works, much of Stalin's, uh, a Marx that goes without saying, and, and by 1974, I'm working as a political analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency doing Soviet politics and economics uh, before going to law school. So that, in a nutshell, is my background. There is, it goes without saying, no one else in America really with this kind of background, particularly when I start teaching at Virginia in 1979, where the deal I strike with uh, my masters there is you let me do Soviet law because that's really my passion. And I will make you, myself useful to you by uh, doing something that Virginia is already very good at, but I find interesting as well, which is American tax law. So I go through this, uh, you know, more than a decade where most of my scholarship is in tax law, but in the background, I'm getting more and more engaged in Soviet stuff. I've traveling to the Soviet Union two or three times a year during throughout the 80s, get involved in the reform project so that when they declare the Soviet Union over, among the things I'm drawn into uh, is a project by U.S. Treasury that had started in Central and Eastern Europe, that they decide they want to extend further east to Moscow to provide tax advice to the ministries of finance of the former Soviet states. Uh, and I throw myself into that basically from 93 to 98. I probably somewhere on the other side of the former Iron Curtain, uh, six times a year, I guess, working closely with the team we have on the ground in Moscow, many of whom are my former students. And I'm working very closely with a guy named uh, Sergei Dmitrovich, I'm sorry, Sergei Dmitrovich Shatala, who was the, a former physicist who became a tax specialist in the legislature, then the government, and then he's the deputy minister of finance. 
He's a terrific friend. Uh, I, I, I'm looking at a picture he gave me of uh, a village in Russia. Um, I have enormous respect for him. Our project is to uh, get through the tax code. That is finished in 2000. I'm out of Russia by then. Sergei is, is at the peak of his powers as deputy minister of finance. And in 2003, for a variety of reasons, the government decides that it should take down uh, Yukos. Uh, Sergei Dmitrovich is the person in charge of that project. It unfolds in multiple stages. I first get involved when Yukos still is in bankruptcy. It's been stripped of its most valuable assets, but you know, when you've got a tens of billions of dollar company, even the leftovers are worth something. And they're in a private arbitration, London-based private arbitration with what had been the number three company until it merged with Yukos, Sibneft, a Roman uh, Abramovich's company. And, and there was well, a... Um, Paul, sorry, I'm so sorry, yeah. for, so sorry yeah. for interrupting you. Yeah. Can we... Um, can we just I'm telling you, you too much? I'm no, no, you you, much. no. Yeah. I want actually more, uh, and if Mark doesn't mind, I was wondering if you could give us for those of us who don't know that much about Yukos. I think we've probably all heard of it, and we all heard about the giant claims that have been award awarded to it. But I don't have a good understanding of what this entity is. Uh, it's sort of shadowy. It seems to have been born out of corruption within the Russian state and then got its assets seized uh, because of corruption and a whole bunch of corrupt people uh, chasing after each other's giant sums of money. Is that, sir, I, I think it would help us to know like, what is this thing, Yukos, and why did it have so much money, and why did the Russian government and Putin turn against it and its CEO? Sure. Uh, so I want to be careful about throwing around words like corruption. I, I would say that the birth story of Yukos is hotly contested, um, that you have people like uh, Bernard Black, who in uh, an article in the Stanford Law Review, I think in 1998, he says some very strong things about the origin story. And then you have American political scientists who worked on the reform process in Russia in the 90s who have a very different narrative. And I wasn't there. And, and I, I have not been involved in any of the disputes about the birth story. So I'll, I'll just try and lay out as objectively as possible what happened. The uh, Russian government in 1996 made available some of the assets that were then state owned in what was called the loans for shares transactions. That's to say uh, banks and other entrepreneurs that had uh, managed to assemble access to capital, uh, a foreign hard currency capital, were invited to loan money to the government with uh, shares in these state-owned entities, put up a security with the understanding there would be a default and the security would pass to the lenders. That's how uh, Mr. Hodakovsky's bank, uh, income bank, 
uh, not Income Bank, I'm sorry, Menetap, Menetap uh, uh, became the owner of these production companies. So they owned assets. It's hotly debated whether uh, they got a deep discount or not. Uh, there were various restructuring involving other lenders to those companies, minority shareholders. Um, tough things have been said by people like Bernie Black about those restructurings. Other people have defended what happened. I don't know. But as of 1998, when title in the oil assets is free and clear, Yukos is set up as a holding company for just a really a empire that does more than just uh, produce oil, but transports it, does the banking, does the finance. And, and the owner, Mikhail Hodakovsky, is his thing, it's a lot like Bill Browder, the American investor. His idea is I'm going to run things clean with Western experts and Western supervision. So he hires Pricewaterhouse to audit the company. He brings in people from Houston and London as the CFO and the CEO. The idea is, however we used to do business in Russia, this is going to show how Western business practices work. That's his story. It's spectacularly successful. By 2003, it is easily the largest energy company in Russia. I think at the point, it's number four in the world, and they are in uh, merger talks with ExxonMobil, which have consummated, would form the world's largest energy company. And uh, this is a period when energy prices are continuously rising. So, you know, that's the values. There is a public skirmish on television between Hodakovsky and Putin. Uh, some people have interpreted it as uh, Hodakovsky suggesting that he might be seen as an alternate model to that that Putin is providing in the post-Yeltsin leadership. Everyone agrees the Nazis is a disaster. Uh, everyone agrees it's one of the worst times in uh, Russian history. They don't want to go back to that. Uh, but what is the way forward? Putin uh, can be seen as representing uh, greater continuity with the firmness of the past, although still engaged with the West, while Hodakovsky uh, not uh, totally selling out Russian origins, but uh, perhaps uh, borrowing more from the West. And that leads, the television show ends with Putin saying to Hodakovsky, maybe Mr. Hodakovsky, you need to check your taxes. <laughs> um, so that leaves us with um, sort of, I think, the, the juicy part of the story um, that might lead into to the next part of our discussion. Can you just to tell us how the Russian government then, and, and I'm sure my putting it this way may also be contested, but I, as I understand the story, essentially uses tax law to nationalize Yukos, although um, then dispenses with some of the assets and giving them to Rosneft, as I understand. But but maybe I'm missing I'm missing some of the important uh, details. That's basically right. There, I, I would say there are two parts of the story, Mark. I mean, one is the assessment itself. Uh, they come up with a reassessment because, you know, Yukos has been audited 
uh, many times. So this is the fall of 2003, the 2000, 2001, two, three tax years are still open. Uh, actually, after the 2000 tax year closes in terms of statute of limitations, they come up with a massive assessment, uh, which uh, without boring your audience with the tax law technicalities, I'd say part of it was uh, uh, superficially plausible, although weaker than you might think, uh, having to do with transfer pricing and the uh, uh, common practice in the energy industry everywhere, but Russia in particular, of using multiple uh, subsidiaries to uh, locate transactions in favorable tax jurisdictions. You know, just what we're excited about with Starbucks and Apple in Europe right now. And then, but the larger share was a VAT assessment that without bothering you with the details, just accept my word for it, it was crazy. I mean, it, it was bonkers and understood at the time to be bonkers. Uh, so that's part one, uh, a uh, assessment that started at 8 billion and as they kept on opening more tax years and leveraging the assessments up from um, January of 2004 to October of 2004, I think the assessments went from uh, initially about 8 billion US dollars to something closer to 30 billion of US dollars. But wait, there's more because there was in fact plenty of, of liquid assets, no pun intended. I'm not talking about the oil on the ground, I, I, but they had just merged with, but not yet uh, consolidated SIBNAF. So they owned uh, a uh, SIBNAF stock that was easily worth about 20 billion. Uh, and they had lots of cash on hand. So they were prepared, you know, they protested the tax assessments, but they were prepared to pay them. But the Russian government said, you're fraudsters. We know you're fraudsters because look how large our claims are. And the claims could not be this large if you had not been engaged in fraud. Therefore, we will not let you use your own money to pay us. We will decide how we get paid. And we want to get paid by attaching your three production companies, which are the actual uh, oil and gas pumping assets. So, uh, and, and we do that by uh, you know, in the United States, we'd call it a jeopardy assessment. We just swoop in and attach the assets. And then as any civilized country do, you convert a lien into cash with an auction. So they have an auction. They uh, at first only allow Ross Neff to bid in the auction, but then there's a lawsuit in the United States. And so they create an entity above a garage in a tiny town, I think in the Urals, and it wins a lowball bid for the three production companies. I think it was something like $9 billion. Don't hold me to that, uh, which it flips the next day to Rosneft. So the, I'm just giving you an example of the Matrushka slash Potemkin nature of all these transactions. You know, It's just a fog of transactions. Uh, but what ends up is all of the valuable production company assets are now in Rosneft's hands. And Rosneft went from a gleam in the Russian government's eye and ambition to renationalize uh, 
the oil and gas assets that had been privatized away, away during the 90s to suddenly, as Yukos had been, the single largest oil and gas producer in Russia. So as we go into break, I'm wondering if I can set up a bit of discussion about the efforts to enforce the claims that wind up emerging from this this process. And and just as as context for my own way of thinking about this, it seems like there, of course, it's very hard to enforce a claim against a foreign government, but there are sort of two models for doing it, one of which is maybe the government really desperately needs access to foreign capital markets and you can kind of shut them out of that. And and that doesn't, uh, it's not clear that that really describes Russia. Um, But the other model is sort of the Venezuela model where the government's commercial entanglements abroad are so deep that those um, entanglements give creditors something to go after. And, And to do that, they of course, have to sort of impute the government's liabilities to the state-owned enterprises that are usually doing all this commercial work. But that doesn't seem, from my uninformed perspective, like it should be too hard with respect to Rosneft. So I guess I'm wondering, isn't Rosneft just a really juicy target for creditors trying to enforce claims against the Russian government? And if not, why not? Sure. You want me to answer that before or after the break? If you can give us a just a, a taste of an answer going into break, I think that might that I would appreciate sure. that. Yeah. So uh, to me, the model of that you're right about the two tracks. I call it the Argentinian track, uh, and and uh, the other track you can call Venezuela. I'm older and I remember Chile, where Chile sold its car to rich world buyers. And so the uh, claimants of, uh, uh, you know, the Anaconda people, the descendants of the Guggenheim heirs got paid by going to France and Germany and, and, you know, going after the copper that was being sold. Uh, The problem with petroleum is it's such a um, big market that it's very hard to trace particular barrels to particular sellers. Um, and we see this not only with uh, Rosneft, I mean, the uh, National Oil Company of the Republic of Congo, of Brazzaville, you know, it's exactly the same situation. You know, they're uh, selling uh, lots of oil in the West, but the tracing issues between the uh, Barrels that uh, get exported and the cash that shows up in banks is really hard because of uh, the thickness and uh, indistinguishability of, of the petroleum market. So uh, it, it's really hard to, uh, that's, that I think is in a nutshell. Also, of course, Rosneft so far has won against every effort to pierce its corporate veil. You know, the claim is that Rosneft is simply the Yukos assets with a corporate shell. And, and uh, I'm not even sure a British claim, and these cases always get tried out in England because the English courts have the monopoly on all Russian dispute resolution. I don't think that claim has yet been brought in Britain, in London, because uh, 
you know, there, there is an argument that the uh, corporate veil of Rosneft is pretty formally clear. All right. I think we should uh, go to a break and then we will, in the second half, talk about all the different kinds of attempts to enforce and maybe a little bit more about uh, veil piercing in comparison to uh, Venezuela. And then if there is time right at the end, talk about maybe the bigger picture uh, lessons from all of this and Paul's uh, wonderful new forthcoming book that uh, talks about his views of how international law has changed and maybe can be saved. But now we'll go to break. So Paul, if we can start the second half again with some brush clearing, that will help me a lot in understanding this incredibly uh, complex set of attempts at enforcement. So among the questions I have is one really basic one, which is what the basis for the claims is, because I see taxation as always the kind of thing that sovereigns have control of legally. And, uh, you know, going back to the gold clause uh, cases of the 1930s, uh, I remember in Sebastian Edwards's book, uh, or maybe it's in Gerard Magliocca's uh, article, they talk about how Justice Jackson, uh, when he was uh, advising the administration, says, you know, let's just tax, tax the, the, the payments on the bond issues. Uh, that would be an easy way to remedy our problem that would be perfectly legal. And then I, I remember in Greece in 2012, uh, that was a, a solution that was posed uh, to the Greek debt problem as, again, being that, you know, we can always tax. Uh, that's not expropriation. That's, that's just something that governments always have the right to do. And uh, Jamaica, some years later, uh, threatened its bondholders with imposing uh, taxes and uh, forced them into the restructuring basket. Uh, but uh, reading about UCOS and uh, reading some of your work, and actually I watched a video of your giving a speech at Case Western, makes me think that's too simplistic of a view. In, there are government actions regarding taxation uh, that can be so abusive that courts around the world will hold them to be expropriatory. Is that sort of a, maybe just asking you to talk about the different strategies that were used to go after the Russian state, just in terms of getting judgments, and then maybe we can go to enforcement. Sure. Uh, so at the most abstract level, me too, I, I think, uh, at least for the Americans in the audience, it's worth remembering that uh, the Supreme Court over time has sometimes invoked the due process clause to Oh limit. no, are we talking about the constitution? We never talk about the constitution on this podcast, but I forgot Paul in addition to knowing all of these business finance tax areas actually knows about the constitution. 
It's outrageous. Well, I, I don't have much respect for the Supreme Court or American constitutional law, but sometimes even a blind pig. And uh, in, in this case, it's, if it's an accepted principle that uh, otherwise legitimate taxes in the US system can go too far, and typically uh, uh, it's either because they're retroactive or because they're so completely arbitrary to not have a, uh, a legally enforceable standard, we can say you can't do that. And, and that, in essence, is what the international investment law concepts of expropriation and fair and equitable treatment get at. So long before UCOS, we've had cases where uh, I would put it that host governments do bait and switches. You know, they, they want capital in once it's there. Uh, they uh, uh, impose new taxes that are not simply uh, rate increases on the future revenue streams, but really are meant to capture the value of the assets uh, that had, had accrued. And when that happens, you can call it tax, but it really is something else. Where you draw that line is extremely hard. And uh, just to give you an example, uh, one piece of the UCOS dispute went to the European Court of Human Rights. And the European Court of Human Rights said, we don't do tax. And so we're not going to question any of the tax measures imposed by the Russian government, even the VAT uh, stuff, which again, without explaining why, I'll just tell you it was completely bonkers. Uh, but they said, it's tax, we don't do tax. The Human Rights Court, the Strasbourg Court, still found a $2 billion judgment for the company because of the strategy of not letting them pay the tax. They said, you can assess them all you want, but then you got to let them pay, and, and, which is not what the Russian government permitted. The international law are arguments were actually not that you know, crazy. Indeed, I think they were very solid and mainstream, which is that these particular acts of taxation by the Russian government were such a sharp break from past practice and uh, un the government was unable really to come up with a legal explanation for what they're doing. And indeed, in, two, in 2005, months after they were completed doing all the assessments on UCOS, the relevant high court, uh, what was sometimes called the high commercial court, a, a Supreme Court, one of several in the Russian system said, we're not doing this anymore. They, they repudiated in principle, all the arguments that the Russian Federation had relied on uh, to get what they got out of UCAS. So, you know, given that it was retroactive, that it was unprecedented, that if anything was arbitrary, this was arbitrary. And the biggest piece of which, the VAT uh, stuff, again, I'll just tell you, it was crazy. Uh, so that uh, that was not a hard case to make. So, Paul, I my, if memory serves, these actions were brought in a variety of different settings. You've mentioned the European Court of Human Rights. I think a number of the claims were also brought uh, under investment treaties, bilateral investment treaties. And I'm wondering, you know, how did this 
all play out. So does does this does this Yuko story give us a sense once once we have the background that this was outrageous and you know wasn't a hard legal claim to make that it was outrageous and expropriatory. The next question is, if you are an investor, how do you go about bringing these claims? So let's say if I'm a US investor uh, who had a minority position in Yukos and basically they expropriated all of my value, do I go and look at what kind of investment treaties the US has with Russia? and then bring my claim? Or do I go to the State Department and plead with uh, people in the State Department to bring a claim at whatever international court? Or do I form a subsidiary in the Netherlands and then bring a claim under their bilateral investment treaty? I mean, I, I you know, Mark and I uh, think of ourselves as doing work on sovereign debt and about claims and enforcement. But this is a world that while Mark knows a little bit about, I don't know anything about it. And in the Yukos case, it seems like everything was tried and almost everything succeeded. Am I correct? Uh, pretty How close. did it work? Yeah, yeah sure. So uh, I think I first should explain something that I have not yet made clear, which is in all of these proceedings, uh, starting in 2008, after I had finished my tenure in the State Department and was uh, free of my responsibilities to the government. Uh, I came in as a expert on Russian law, advising lawyers for investors. So I was not doing international law legal advice. I was listening to really good international lawyers and discussing all this with them, but they weren't paying me for my, what I knew about international law, which is good because it wasn't all that much. Uh, they were paying me for giving guidance on Russian law. And the very first case was actually a, uh, a petition to the State Department by the American investors. There no, is no U.S. treaty uh, with Russia. Uh, the one treaty that the U.S. could have joined, the Energy Charter Treaty, which I'll cycle back to, the U.S. decided not to sign. Uh, so all U.S. investors, and there are some, I think there are tens of millions of dollars of clients by US investors, uh, you know, all of whom were in the company before the roof caved in. So this is not people, this is not uh, Elliott buying up claims. This is not vulture funds. This is, uh, you know, pre-disaster investors. Uh, their only uh, resort if they are US nationals is to ask the uh, State Department to espouse their claim. Uh, part of the Magnitsky Act actually was an obligation on the part of the State Department to report on a regular basis, maybe annually, to uh, uh, the Senate on their espousal activity with respect to UCOS. But there is espousal is a state to state political rather than third party formal dispute relation uh, settlement process. So that's the American investors. There are a couple of bits, bilateral investment treaties, and the one I was involved in was a claim under the Spanish treaty, where again, you had uh, legacy investors uh, from Spain. Their uh, actual stake was relatively modest, uh, but what's quite common I have learned in investment claim practice and considered quite appropriate, uh, 
is third party funding. So here, uh, the sort of what I call UCOS in exile, the entities that because they are based in Europe and they're, they bank in Europe, their assets were not reached by the Russian attacks. Uh, they have been pressing these claims and they finance the Spanish claim. So that was a straightforward bit case, uh, uh, interesting treaty interpretation issues, but jurisdictional issues were very clear. A, a modest award plus costs. Uh, there, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, the Russian Federation sought to annul the award and the Spanish investors did not make an appearance. And, and I'm not privy to the legal strategy here, but my guess that what was going on is that uh, the various UCO stakeholders wanted to build precedent. And indeed, this is, I think, the overarching theme of all these stories. Uh, they're trying to play a long game, uh, you know, not unlike the Argentinian investors, uh, you know, build up as strong a legal case as possible by winning tribunal awards in credible, legally sound ways and wait till Russia finds itself in a position where it needs to solve this problem. And, and I think that's the story. So, so then comes the Energy Charter Treaty and most, in terms of value, most of the awards have been under the Energy Charter Treaty. That's a treaty that encompasses Russia, many of the European states, and, and it, it's limited to the energy industry, but the substantive protection for investors is what you would find in a bit. Uh, and, and Paul, can I, so we have this, this sort of wide diversity of legal proceedings brought in a wide diversity of forums and all these different tribunals, all in pursuit of this longer term strategy. And I guess one of the questions that raises for me echoes claims we sometimes hear in sovereign debt markets, which are these sort of comparative competence claims for different sorts of tribunals, often made in the context of arbitration, either when connected with a bit, um, uh, typically when connected with a bit, and often referring to arbitration under the auspices of the ICSID. And I'm wondering, do we, can we make any inferences about whether any tribunals are particularly effective or even important in shaping the course of these kinds of enforcement efforts? Or is it just you're trying to build up a stack of awards and judgments and waiting for some opportune time when you can leverage them into getting paid? So, you know, as a law professor and a legal formalist, I would love to be able to say that it's the prestige of the tribunal that does all the work. Uh, as someone out in the world, I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that that's true. Uh, that um, it's worth noting, by the way, that the the of the BRICS, uh, China is the only brick that's in ICSID. None of the others are. Uh, ICSID is important in Latin America in particular, but has nothing to do with uh, the cases I'm describing. The Energy, Energy Charter treaty, treaty specifies the Permanent Court of International Arbitration in The Hague, 
which is, you know, an important tribunal. Uh, the bits that were signed in the early 90s almost always specified the Stockholm International Chamber of Commerce because that was a time when uh, the Swedes were acceptable to both the West and the Soviet Union. You know, good socialists that still understood capitalism. So uh, most of those bits, maybe all of those bits, were legally at home in Stockholm, although, of course, people still went to London to actually uh, have the proceeding. What I've seen, at least, is at, at the arbitration end is really more building up a book of awards. Uh, the more recent uh, round has been uh, creditors as opposed to investors, and there's an interesting issue that I have no opinion on. I'm not involved in this issue, but you know, to what extent a creditor as an investor, you, me too, has certainly looked at the bondholder issues where bondholders have been treated as, as investors. So there is a new round of energy charter treaty claims being brought against the Russian Federation uh, by basically other parts of the Yukos family, the parts that survive uh, the collapse of everything in Russia uh, that have mostly contractual claims rather than stock claims is the way I would put it, speaking very loosely and informally. Uh, but they keep on coming back to the Energy Charter Treaty as the uh, forum. Paul, um, we, are, we have taken up far too much of your time, but we have many, many more questions. So I'm hoping you will uh, permit us to ask a uh, last couple of questions uh, before the end of the podcast. Uh, I know we're, we're getting to the close. And so the, the, these are um, my two last questions. One, in our sovereign debt work, and I think it's fair to say in most of the literature on sovereigns and compliance, the core enforcement mechanism that is discussed, and it is discussed as a highly effective enforcement mechanism, is a reputation. And reputation is seen to be particularly important for a sovereign that has lots of uh, foreign dealings, and, and in particular, that has to go to the capital markets to raise funds periodically, as uh, Russia does periodically, not in huge amounts, but it does go uh, to the eurobond market to raise funds. And it's, it's really, from an outsider's perspective, I find it hard to see uh, what penalty Russia seems to be suffering. I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, that they do all sorts of stuff and uh, Putin, I mean, there was talk even of him getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, I mean, I know that's that's a joke in some ways, but still, uh, that doesn't seem to be a reputational penalty for a Russian behavior. But more broadly, I'm hoping we, we and you, of course, um, can close by talking about the connection between your view of this almost two-decade-long Yukos saga and your new book and sort of the big picture story 
uh, that you tell in your new book. Um, maybe that's too much, but I'm, I'm hoping we can uh, beg you to do all of those things in, in a couple minutes. I'll be brisk, me too, as brisk as I can. First on the reputation point, I, I, I think you have to think of reputation as segmented and discrete. Uh, I, I think you're right that in terms of uh, debt access, Russia hasn't suffered a lot. It helps that it's gone from being completely on its back at the start of the 90s to becoming, again, a really good debtor, you know, paying things off. Uh, so I, I, I think uh, as long as it doesn't uh, get too greedy, it can return to debt markets and do not pay too high a penalty. On the other hand, I, I think the Yuko story and related stories, mostly involving energy, but also telecoms, has scared off most Western strategic investors. So Russia can get portfolio investment, particularly in bond forms and other loan forms, but uh, strategic investment into the Russian economy, which means technology transfer, uh, that's what strategic investment has at its heart, is really dried up. And I think that is affecting Russia. I think that's the huge difference between Russia and China, uh, access to uh, um, technolo technological insights and competitive technology. Uh, Russia is becoming a Saudi Arabia with a cold climate uh, and better alcohol. And, and, and how this connects to my book, you're very kind to ask. It's a work in progress. If uh, all goes well, it may see the light of day by the end of 2022. It's called The World Crisis in International Law. And the big picture is that there seems to be a lot of bad things going on, on in the planet right now. COVID kind of captures it, but there, to me, COVID is almost a metaphor rather than a particular episode. Uh, there, there's uh, the fraying of bonds of distrust, the disruption of the legacy democracies, the rise of authoritarian states, and, and uh, the uh, revolts of national populism in much of the rich world, uh, the use of populism as a way of leveraging power for authoritarians uh, outside the traditional legacy democracies. Um, that uh, I, I think that's a rich and complex story, but the little piece of it that I gnaw on has to do with the contribution of the knowledge economy, uh, the knowledge economy, which I think has become the dominant means of production in the 21st century. Uh, we can see its antecedents really going back to the end of World War II, uh, which divides the world roughly and extremely crudely speaking into three classes, knowledge workers, people who provide uh, low human capital, people who provide support to knowledge workers, many of whom are emigres who go to the great global cities where knowledge workers congregate and people in the hinterlands who are immiserated by the rise of the knowledge economy. Uh, there's a much more to the world than this story, but I think it's a story that hasn't been fully developed and told, and the point of my book is to tell this story. What it means is that we're living in challenging times with serious threats, and, and if we are to find new means of international cooperation, we have to let go of some of our legacy practices 
and uh, find new ways of cooperation, which I think will tend to be based on norm entrepreneur activity by leading states rather than the 1990s model, of let's get together and create a new organization, a new treaty and proclaim international cooperation from the top down. And it may very well be that the norm entrepreneur will be China rather than the United States. End of story. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming to join us. And I hope we can maybe get you back on when the book comes out so that we can talk in a lot more detail about it. But we really appreciate you joining us and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Mm -hmm.